My mission is to hold up a mirror to remind people of their own greatness. Success is being able to come at the end of life, having lived a fulfilled life rather than a life chasing achievement and success. Which brings me to the next sentence, which is fulfillment is. <laughs> fulfillment is an inner sense of satisfaction knowing that you walked a path of truth and integrity and owned the mistakes and were okay with them along the way. Failure is? Your capital. Hmm. It's your biggest lessons that you learn from that you pay the most for, so you should value the most. I get inspiration from? A higher source of intelligence and understanding that every single person I meet can teach me something. I love dogs because... <laughs> they are the epitome of unconditional love. Which world leader would you like to take to dinner? Nelson Mandela, if he was still around. Oh, we have this in common. Yeah, right. and not many of the ones that currently are. Definitely someone that uh, I admire in so many ways. Yeah. My favorite place in the world is... Home. Where is home? Wherever I'm at. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of the Recursive Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our first guests, and if you still wonder what is our goal here, then let me tell you. We want to tap into the minds of innovation leaders from Southeast Europe. We want to understand their values, we want to understand their leadership style, philosophies of life, and basically, what is it the secret sauce that makes them so successful? But my next guest does this for a living. He has many occupations, and uh, he's been a serial entrepreneur, an acclaimed author, an expert in human behavior, a motivational speaker. Peter Sage has been traveling the world, writing books, giving lectures, coaching others, running marathons. And all this is devoted to answering one question. How can we become better versions of ourselves? Peter Sage, welcome to the Recursive Podcast. Absolute pleasure it is to be here. Yes, uh, excellent. Always enjoy my time here in Bulgaria. I found that there are certain countries who historically seem to have had you know, a little bit of a tough time in terms of believing in their own potential. But when it comes to you know, the tipping point, more and more people are starting to believe in possibility. And I see that so prevalent in Bulgaria. I see people that are saying, no, you know, we're not going to accept labels that have been put on us for generations. We believe and starting to believe in it. They've got the want to, and now more looking for the how to. And so I find that some of the messages that I share are very well received here, because not because the messages are you know, special or from me, but because the timing is so great. Tell me, the people that um, come to your coachings and um, your your lectures, what are the maybe the top three struggles that they experience in their lives and they believe that uh, you can help them with? Great question. And I think there's definitely a pattern around the kind of people that are attracted to my work. And I would categorize the first group of people as frustrated entrepreneurs. They're people who have essentially committed time, committed energy, committed resources. They've, they've jumped in with both feet and they've played the game so hard that they're getting burnt out and they're still not achieving the levels of satisfaction that they think that that route will give them. 
And that's because there's a big difference between understanding a life chasing success, which most people are, versus a life chasing fulfillment. And those people that chase success usually get to the top of success mountain and wanna jump off because what they think is gonna be waiting for them isn't. And I see a lot of people that, you know, it's, it's a standard joke. You know, we have people and entrepreneurs that say, right, I'm gonna commit and sacrifice, you know, so many hours, so many of the best years of my life, you know, ruining my relationships, missing my kids grow up, sacrificing my health, so that hopefully I can get to a place where I've made enough money or had enough success where I can exit at that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And what happens? Well, for a start, 5% of people usually would get to that level. And for those that do, they realize that now, finally, they've made enough money, so what? So they can pay for their divorce, so they can hire a personal trainer to get their health back, and so they can buy their kids loads of stuff so they think they love them again. I mean, it's, it's almost a, a joke because they're playing the game of feel great when. You know, I feel great when I have enough money, when I get the successful business, when I feel good enough, when I, you know, I'm validated by whatever my achievements are that I think has to happen in order to be validated. And that's a hamster wheel to nowhere. You know, that's, that's a tunnel with no cheese. I, I ran down that tunnel for many years in my 20s. And a lot of it for me was driven by the insecurities of trying to prove to the world that I was good enough because I never believed that I was. And no amount of business success, certificates on the wall, external accolades are ever gonna fill an internal gap that can only be filled from a different place. So I get a lot of people that come to me who are frustrated. They're, they're putting in the time, they're taking the risks, but they just don't feel as if you know, they're, they're, they've arrived, that there's something missing, there's something more. Another big group of people are people that are struggling to make sense of you know, the, uh, the inner game in terms of self-sabotage. Mm. Um, procrastination, things that are not external skills to learn or you know, to be able to conquer or master, but the person in the mirror is becoming their own worst enemy. Yeah, not their competition, yeah, not their you know, staff that don't show up on time or anything like that. It's not an external animal, it's an internal animal. And that has to do a lot with you know, areas of self-worth, areas of self-belief, and it's really addressing those. And most of us just don't have you know, any skills on how to do that. It's, it's a maze with no map. So, you know, we didn't learn in school you know, what makes us get up in the morning excited or not excited, what makes us relate to each other, or what makes us talk ourselves out of something versus into something. We haven't been given uh, an operating system guide for the software in our mind. So I tend to get a lot of people at that level whereby they, they just want to know how, you know, what makes them do the things that they do. You know, what are why would I put something off that I know is good for me, that I even know I have the skills on being able to do, but when it comes to actually doing it, something far more important like cleaning out my cupboard, you know, suddenly jumps up my priority list. So that there's a lot of people that are starting to crave and understand that there is a huge difference between information, which is everywhere. You can get whatever university syllabus that you want to go pay for to get your MBA, whether it's Harvard, INSEAD, or anything else. Yeah, you can get it online for free. There's enough people posting it. But that doesn't guarantee transformation. And quality of life is not linked to education. I'm sorry, that's a lie that was perpetuated through the 20th century. Never confuse education for intelligence. Okay. This is a very interesting topic. Maybe we can tap into that as well. Mm -hmm. um, but first, I would like to say that, um, you know, the two 
struggles that you mentioned, I will be frank here. I very much identify myself exactly with these two. So mm -hmm. through my whole life, um, I've been caring a bit too much about people's opinion. Mm -hmm. And somehow, regardless of how much affirmation and confirmation I receive, I don't feel good enough. Yeah. And maybe, I don't know, maybe it's something which is, you know, typical for women or more typical for women. I don't know. Um, but the problem is that even though I know this blind spot of myself, I don't seem to, I don't know, have access to changing it or mm -hmm. transforming it. So I think, yeah, what would you say to a person like me? <laughs> well, I, I appreciate the, the projection from the level of gender. Uh, it is ubiquitous. You know, men suffer from that just as much. They just have more ego that prevents them from showing it a lot of the time. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, as I say, in my 20s, I, I was desperately trying to prove to the world I was good enough through success. I was trying to get significance, external validation, approval, you know, acceptance, through trying to chase something that needed to fit my pictures in the outer world. And that's never going to happen. You are never going to get internal validation from external objects or, or things. It's, never, it's an inside job. But I'll give you some insight into you know, the, the pattern because I looked at this extensively and I, I call it goop. Now, most people spend their life swimming in goop, which is a sticky, nasty, you know, very destructive substance. And goop stands for the good opinion of other people. And it's so destructive for two reasons. One is the fact that it prevents us from being authentic because instead of showing up in our true fullness and potential, we are constantly filtering our behavior through how we think other people are seeing us and judging us. And therefore, we are always adapting to try to fit what we perceive to be the approval strategies or acceptance strategies of others. And that's one problem. The biggest problem is that None of that's actually going on. It's a complete lie, and I'll demonstrate. I believe that we all star in the movie of our life. I think that we are the only star in the movie of our life, and I know we are the star because we're the only people that are in every single scene of the movie of our life. Yeah, there are no co-stars. You may have a supporting cast, a parent, a sibling, a best friend, a, a boss, a spouse, whatever. But you're the only person who's in every single scene of your movie. You're the star. Now, by definition, what that means is that everybody else plays one of two roles. At best, you may have a handful of supporting cast, like I mentioned. But the vast, vast majority of people in your movie, throughout your entire movie, are film extras. Now, what is the definition of a film extra? Pretty simple. It's somebody you're not thinking about when they're not in your scene. Okay. Now, here's the challenge. Because we see ourselves as the star of our movie, when we're walking around our movie, we think everybody else sees us as the star of our movie. But they don't, because they're not starring in our movie. They're starring in a different movie. Their own, obviously. Which means by definition, we only play one of two roles in everybody else's movie. Maybe, at best, we're a supporting cast. Rare. But the vast majority of people who we worry about what they think of us we're nothing more than a film extra in their movie. They're not even thinking of us when we're not in their scene. So if you want to break it down, the reality of the fear of you know, other people's opinion is a ghost. It's a myth. It doesn't exist. It's this fantasy bubble that we invent to cover up our own internal insecurities. And you can sum it up as follows. 
most people don't care enough about you to bother to give an opinion. Why? Not because they're indifferent, it's because they're too busy being worried about what they think you're thinking of them. Everybody's walking around in this bubble of self-importance thinking, I wonder what everybody thinks of me in my bubble of self-importance, not realizing that nobody cares about you in your bubble of self-importance because they're wandering around in their bubble of self-importance, wondering what you're thinking of them. And when you realize that, not at just an intellectual level, but an emotional level, you get it, the penny drops, like, whoa, the freedom, the weight that drops off the shoulders because you're not trying to prove anything anymore. Why? Because the people you thought you were trying to prove it to don't actually care because they're not even judging it. Okay then, um, but here is my next question. So mm -hmm. when you achieve this kind of freedom, when you overcome this strong need of being significant, mm -hmm. as, you, as you say, then how do you extract this self-worth? Where does it come from? Right. Self-worth really begins with a, a lot of, there's two sides, we hear the nature and nurture. Now the reality is there's both. Both play a, a role. We have an inherent level of characteristic to our personality. Ask any parent that has twins. Uh, exactly the same environment, completely different personalities. Right, so we know that personality, it plays a role. Yeah, nature plays a role. But the nurture side is also uh, a, a role. If you grew up in a family where you had a elder sibling who you believed that had all the attention because they were better because they were older and you were always trying to prove that you were good enough, that pattern would become inherent. If you were in, uh, had a, a parent who was always shouting and angry, you would adapt to become a people pleaser so that you didn't rock the apple cart or you didn't get the condemnation from the parent when what you really wanted was love. Now, if you go to school and the teacher asks you a question in geography class, hey, everybody, where is Peru? And you turn around and say, hey, I know the answer. And the teacher says, yeah, Irina, where's, where's Peru? You say, it's on page 46 of the geography book. Now, the answer was correct, but the teacher wanted to know in context of where it was in relation to other countries. But you didn't know that, so you gave an answer and the teacher was upset and the class laughed at you. Now, you experienced a lot of emotions, hurt, upset, ridicule, shame. And as a way to avoid those emotions again, you had adaptation strategies. So let's just say that Everybody laughed, and you can think, well, I'm, I'm gonna be the funny person. I get my significance from people laughing at me, and so you become the class clown. You become the person cracking the same jokes every time that people are really bored of, but you don't know because it's a defense mechanism to stop people from laughing at you because you think they're laughing with you. Or maybe people laughed in class, and you got, in your frustration, you snapped back. You said something like, shut up, and they back down. And now you link anger to the restoration of your own significance. And therefore, Miss or Mr. Angry is born and spends the rest of their life with other people making excuses. Oh, it's okay, they've just got a temper. Don't upset them. No, they've got a childhood pattern of adapting to not feeling not good enough. So we have a lot of the, the, uh, the nurture patterns that are also running in the background. So if you feel that, okay, I don't feel good enough, it's not a case of trying to solve it by being good enough through your actions or your achievements. See, another adaptation to that would be that, oh, I know, I'll prove the teacher wrong by going to get more qualifications. 
I'll become the A student. I'll then go to the advanced training. I'll go to college, then university, then I'll get my MBA, then my PhD, then something else. All to cover up an insecurity that started because you felt that you weren't good enough in an academic sense. And the reality is if you ask anybody that has trodden that path for sometimes decades, no amount of certificates on the wall is going to paper over the cracks of an empty heart. Doesn't work that way. In fact, the answer is counterintuitive in that example. The answer is that the only way to overcome the ridicule, the shame, the fear of not being enough is to do the one thing most people will never do, and that is risk raising your hand again to answer another question. Mm-hmm. So putting yourself, especially in an experience where you have to go through the whole, I don't know, risking being ridiculed again. Absolutely. And then, I don't know, hoping that it will make a difference this time. Being willing to, you know, as we, there's a saying in England, once more unto the breach go I, to be able to step into the fire once more. And next time you ask a question, the teacher says, actually, correct, well done. That will have way more impact on eradicating that pattern than any adaptation strategy of being funny or angry or smart mm-hmm. you know, for the rest of your life. And so when it comes to our insecurities, we, we're not going to ask, why am I not good enough? Because the answer our mind will give is we're not good enough because we haven't achieved enough. We haven't proved we're enough. We haven't had enough adoration. And as you said, no amount of validation will have any long-term impact. It will relieve short-term pain. Oh, I did a good job then. But the next time you have to go on stage or host a podcast or do something, the same fears will come up. Am I good enough? Will it be good this time? What if I'm not, you know, don't do enough? Because you don't have that internal validation. Still looking for the approval of other people because you haven't given it to yourself. And what questions you should be asking yourself instead to get the sense of internal validation? Do a personal inventory of awesomeness. Okay. What's great about me? What's some things that, you know, make me, you know, proud to be me? What are some examples where I can point to that I absolutely nailed it and I rocked it? What is something that I, I just know I can crush? Uh, if I was to ask my best friends, what are some of the things you like about me? Sometimes we're too modest, yeah, i.e. shy, yeah, to be able to ask that because we think it's coming from ego. No, it ask it through empathy or genuine I'm trying to identify some of the best parts of me. Why do you, if you're my best friend, what parts of me do you like? What do you think is great about me? And you'd be amazed at what comes out. And you start collecting evidence, amassing evidence of your own awesomeness. At some point, you're going to start to believe it, and you won't need anybody else to keep telling you. Mm. Rather than look at the flaws. I mean, go to the mirror every morning before you put on your clothes. You don't look at the yourself and say, wow, look how beautiful I am. You say, oh, damn, I've got a, a mole here on my cheek. I've got, you know, my, my breasts aren't the same size. I've got, you know, uh, too much weight coming on here. Or, you know, oh, my, you know I'm not as good looking as the, you know, the other guys on the cover of the fitness magazine. We have all of this self-critical self-talk. And a lot of that has been manufactured in today's society so that it can sell you a perceived solution. And also about the other extreme and uh, something that uh, maybe we kind of, you know, glorify. So I'm sure that you also probably know many um, successful people who are more on the side of uh, sociopathy or high-functioning sociopaths. So when do you cross the border and uh, how do you know that, okay, um, 
I'm not now too arrogant. I'm not now too much self in love with myself. Um, I guess, you know, also fulfillment feels in a different way. I don't know. Tell me about it. Very, very simple to yeah. slice and dice it. You know, I try to keep things as simple as possible. I'm a simple guy. Okay. Uh, and for me, the, the dividing point is how ethnocentric you are, focused on other versus egocentric. If everything's done to show how good I am to other people in terms of a comparison frame, then yeah, you're going to be the narcissistic level of sociopath where it's all about you. Yeah, you're a taker, not a giver. Yeah, are you building your business so that you, know, you can you know, demonstrate how good you are? Or are you building a business because it's a vehicle to give your gift to the world to be able to impact a lot of people? Mm -hmm. Am I focused on what I can contribute or what I can take? And having a high sense of healthy self-esteem is one thing. But how that is grounded in arrogance versus pride versus ego. See, having a healthy ego that is serving to others, you look at Mother Teresa, you look at Oprah Winfrey, you look at people who, you know, if you can name one person of note that has impacted the world in a positive way that doesn't have some level of what we would call ego, Never heard of them because they didn't do anything. And Gandhi, in the face of opposition, one million armed British soldiers simply cannot contain 100 unarmed Indians that do not want to be contained. And with that level of conviction, brought down the biggest empire in the world at that point. There was no ego there. It wasn't defiance, so I'm better than you. No, it was, I have a principle I stand for. I believe this principle serves the greater good not my own you know, personal benefit. Mm -hmm. That level of what you could call ego, a higher conscious ego, is paramount. That's where self-esteem separates from arrogance, which is self-opinion. At the same time, I'm thinking that um, operating in this startup world where you're supposed to grow really fast, you know, have this blitzkrieg type of offensive, um, you do need a certain amount of ego Mm -hmm. to be able to walk through, you know, this very intense period of Correct. time. Um, in fact, some while ago, we were having another conversation with a, with a startup founder who was also a very passionate tennis player. And he would mention um, Naval and Djokovic of examples of, you know, being athletes who are, have this mindset of winning at all costs. Mm -hmm. And I somehow, you know, relate winning at all costs pretty much to ego, you know, um, maybe need for significance. I'm not saying that uh, neither, you know, Nadal or Djokovic are like that. I don't know them, but this is my first association. So um, how is that difference from a different, um, or let me, let me rephrase it. Isn't, you know, this startup way of thinking pretty much, you know, connected to having a very strong ego, wanting you know, to prove yourself. Yeah, uh, and again, the, the wanting to prove yourself is a different issue. Okay. Uh, but exactly what I said previously about being egocentric or ethnocentric. In sport, sport is a finite game. For somebody to win, somebody has to lose. Mm. Right. So the same characteristics that make somebody world-class at that are the same characteristics that can make a world-class entrepreneur. Predominantly determination. Okay. See, in business, the opponent isn't you know, the person across the tennis court. It's 
the competition, the regulations, the innovation, the, the challenges that show up. So you have absolute headstrong determination to be able to conquer those challenges because you're not gonna crumble in the face of overwhelming odds. See, business owners face overwhelming odds against them. I like those odds. Uh, that, that turns me on. I'm like, it can't be done, watch me. Now the difference is Djokovic isn't looking to make his opponent suffer or be less than there's no vindictiveness, there's no enmity there. There's no, it's like, oh, yeah, I, I take satisfaction at watching you squirm. That there's none of that going on. It's like, listen, you're in the way, you're an obstacle, just like a, you know, a low balance sheet would be an obstacle or a low cash flow position. I have the determination and resources to be able to conquer that obstacle. And then take it personally. There may be some oh, yeah, uh, offset and um, uh, off court yeah, rivalry, but predominantly you'll see someone like, you know, some of the top athletes uh, in tennis, Roger Federer is a great example, beautifully nice guy. Uh, you go into mixed martial arts, one of my former heroes, Anderson Silva, an absolute gentleman uh, off the, uh, you put him in the octagon and his mission is to kill whoever's in front of him because his job is to win the fight in you know, physical violence at the highest level. Often they also have this kind of little rituals where they put themselves into this kind of, you know, mindset. A state, because they, you know, they, yeah. one minute you're sitting down with your family, the next minute you've got to be a warrior. Mm -hmm. That allows you to transverse the different archetypes of the human personality. We all have them. We have access to the warrior. It's been conditioned out of a lot of society as being bad, but you know, there's times where the warrior is required for, for women especially to draw on the warrior to be able to draw boundaries mm -hmm. is something that a lot would benefit from being able to get in touch with. And you've also got the aspect of the lover, the archetype of the lover. Most men who live in their warrior would do well to learn how to become more acquainted with that. Mm. You know, there is a time when they go home that you know, their partner would like the warrior and to, to ravish them if they trust them. But there's also a time where they don't want, they want empathy, connection. Uh, they, they want something that holds a space for them from a, a loving place where they can surrender their heart to somebody they trust because there's the same level of connection. You have the archetype of the magician the creativity. That's where the entrepreneurs need to go to when they're trying to figure out the solutions to the problems that present themselves. Mm. And then you have the sovereign. And again, these archetypes are ubiquitous through human history, through storytelling, through yeah, campfire, fables. It's the four predominant energies of the human personality. Learning how to access those rather than get stuck in one was far more about the blossoming of the human personality than it is trying to yeah, point fingers because you, know, you think somebody you know, has a different model of the world. So when it comes to that ritual that you spoke about, Anderson Silva needs to know how to go from you know, the, the lover and the connection with the family to the magician trying to work out his gameplay for the fight IQ against a certain type of opponent with a strategy, to the warrior who steps in ruthlessly, to the sovereign at the end who can shake hands with the opponent in defeat or success. And if you're just as passionate about innovation as we are, hit subscribe for the Recursive Podcast on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. We're everywhere. That's a very interesting uh, way of thinking. And it actually kind of, you know, got me asking which would be the archetypes that we can use as um, in leadership? Sovereign. sovereign. Okay. The, the sovereign is in charge of the orchestra. Yeah, you have the conductor. And each instrument plays its own role. 
But if they're trying to fight with each other or you just have you know, the, the violin when it's really meant to be the trumpet or the piano, it's, you're not gonna get the best out of the symphony. So if you go to mythology, you know, let's use King Arthur as a great example. King Arthur was the sovereign. He had Merlin, the magician, that was required to create the magic and the solutions and the spells required. But if the magician is on the throne, then you basically just have a party and not a lot gets done. If you just have the warrior on the throne, you have a dictatorship. If you have the lover on the throne, the borders are gonna get overrun because you don't have the boundaries. You think everybody's your friend, right? You just wanna connect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the sovereign is the person in charge. Now the sovereign's role is to call upon the warrior. There's times where you need to attack or defend. There's times where the boundary, if the Vikings are invading, you need to call upon the army to serve its purpose in that role. Anderson Silva doesn't walk into the octagon as the lover. <laughs> I can promise you that. Yeah, it's gonna be a very different outcome. True. <laughs> when you walk, I, I talk to some of the students when I teach my health and vitality retreats and we go, I take people to the gym to teach them the, the body transformation exercises that I, I train. I tell people, you, know, you, every personal trainer knows your mind is either your best training partner or your worst training partner. And so the quality of the workout is determined not by the exercise routine that you have. It's determined by who walks in the gym. Mm -hmm. yeah, the magician is gonna give you all the excuses why you've done enough and you can quit early. That's the magician's job. Yeah, you don't wanna put the lover on the leg press when you're trying to do 400 kilos. I can promise you. <laughs> it's association to pain is different. You want the warrior. But the sovereign is the person who holds the conductor's bat on. If the, if the sovereign is on the throne, then the country runs smoothly because the sovereign can call upon the right resources at the right time. So when it comes to being a CEO, when it comes to having that startup, people will be mesmerized by the vision of the magician. Mm -hmm. uh, they, will, uh, they will have to believe in the fact that you've got what it takes uh, in terms of to get through the tough times uh, where you're gonna draw on that warrior energy. You don't want a CEO that's a yes man or a yes woman. You're gonna need somebody that needs to make the tough decisions when the tough decisions need making. But it's the sovereign, you need that, that air of leadership that is ethnocentric, that is doing this for the greater good, not your own ego, that understands the, you know, the emotions that the staff are going through and the, the turbulence that, and can guide them through it from a mentorship level of you know, sovereignty. Not belittle them as not good enough warriors or you know, come on, buckle up. So again, if you're looking at it through the four archetypes of the personality, and it's just different models of being able to work with this inner sense of energy that we have, then the CEO needs to have a strong sovereign. Otherwise, he's not gonna be able to lead the ship when the waters get stormy. And also the ability to discriminate between the different archetypes and know which one you know, needs to be uh, implemented or used in this type of situation. Correct. And this probably also very fast, I guess, you know. Yeah. And again, if you're hiring salespeople, then salespeople need a, a certain combination of different uh, skills, soft skills. Mm -hmm. You need ego to, you need a healthy type of ego for a salesperson, but the ego is in two different parts. You have ego strength and ego drive. Ego strength is rejection armor. You're gonna to need mm -hmm. to have 50 people say no, you're gonna to not take it personally. I've got a lot of ego strength. Uh, I know there's a difference between 
personal rejection and concept rejection. Even if somebody rejects me, I'm, I'm happy to knock on the next door, make the next cold call. Yeah, ego drive is the ability to get up when you're tired and knock on doors and make calls and push through and fight fatigue and keep going. And now if you've got a lot of ego drive and no ego strength, you're going to get up and you know, go, but the third door you knock on that says no, you're going to cry and go home. You may have a lot of ego strength. You can take 50 no's, but if you've got no ego drive, you're not going to knock on the doors. So there's a combination there. But you also need a balance of empathy. You need to understand and relate to your customer. If you have too much ego and not enough empathy, then you're going to stamp on people to get what you want. You're going to compromise your values because your sales quotas and targets are more important than caring about the, the destruction that you leave behind or selling the wrong product to the wrong person. If you have too much empathy and not enough ego, you're going to want to be the customer's best friend, but you won't have the strength to ask for the sale or close it or handle objections. So you need that kind of balance when it comes to looking for salespeople. And of course, in startups specifically, you know, the founder is usually everything to begin with. Mm -hmm. They have to be the visionary. They have to be the tea maker. They have to be the salesperson. They have to be the accountant. They have to be, you know, so because that's where it starts. So, yeah. So, you know, the, but there is a balance. When we start growing, we need to start recognizing that, you know, I'm not hiring off a resume. I don't hire off resumes. Yes, there is a certain level of skill set. If you need a video editor, you need somebody with video editing skills and experience. But I don't care about a resume because that's your echo. Mm. I want your voice. I hire on personality. And most people, unfortunately, they hire on resume and they fire on personality. I hire on personality. Yeah, I select on resume, but I hire on personality. Mm. Skills can be taught. And most skills in today's fast-moving world that people come to the table with are going to be obsolete within 18 months. So you need somebody who you're hiring on the right personality. Are they teachable? Are they coachable? Now, are they ethnocentric, egocentric? Are they going to upset the apple cart with the team dynamic because it's all about them? Are they unable to take criticism because they go home and cry because they've got no you know, ego strength? Mm. Yeah. You're touching to something that has been bugging me for a while now and um, I made this observation in a way which I would say that it's rather typical especially for Eastern Europe um, that we attribute success to a talent that people were born with so they somehow magically were determined to be successful or they have this kind of special knowledge deep dive knowledge and this is why they became successful mm. but now after talking to different types of entrepreneurs and um, also, you know, high achievers. I would say that I have the feeling that passion, motivation, confidence have a much more important role than the, you know, um, practical skills or the practical knowledge. I don't know. This is something that I've been wondering about, and I'm sure that you have like a great answer to this question. This is why I was looking forward to it. I love your confidence yeah. in that. And I'll give you my insight. Mm. And again, I, I want to explain, especially to, to the people you know, watching here, that uh, I have no right to impose my model of the world onto anybody else. You know, I can give you my benefit of experience. I've spent three decades, 32 years next year, as an active entrepreneur, where you know, I've been unemployable since I was 17. I built 27 international companies, yeah, some into you know, multi-millions of dollars. Some have failed majestically. Some have wiped me out. Some have been great. 
you know, you know I've made you know, millions, lost millions, and, and you know, some should have stayed ideas when I was drunk. You know, everything in between. Entrepreneurship is my game. That's what I do. It's who I am. But human behavior and understanding the psychology of why we do what we do has also been a passion for 30 years. And so being able to blend those two, because you, you can have psychologists that are not good business people. And most good business people are not psychologists. So the, the experience that I, I meld there hopefully can offer some level of insight. But to address your question, it's so much easier to avoid walking through the doorway that is required as an entrepreneur or somebody that wants to become successful in whatever field, not necessarily an entrepreneur, but top of their game. And that doorway, the dividing line, every time is courage. Courage is what is required to overcome the fear of failure, to embrace the fear of success. And to, you know, uh, most people tie their self-worth and net worth together, which is a fundamental flaw. Mm -hmm. But yeah, courage is the dividing line, to leave the certainty of what you think was a paid position to go and risk the uncertainty of not knowing what you're gonna earn in this new business, for example. The best way to avoid courage is to project it into what I would term to encapsulate your um, feedback there, the lucky sperm gang. Okay. Yeah, oh, they're born with it. It's something about them that I don't possess. It's not my fault. Therefore, you know, I can rely on being a victim to circumstance that precludes me from needing to face the fear or the reality that, no, I just don't have the courage to go walk the path that they walked. And if I wanna hide behind the academia, because what academia does predominantly is fuel the myth that if I learn enough skills, that'll give me the certainty to succeed. And I got news for you. Biggest challenge with academia is that it sells people down a corridor that says that if I acquire enough skills, I'll have the certainty to go and succeed. And that is a myth because skills do not give you certainty. They give you skills. Certainty is internal. Mm -hmm. Skills are external. You will never replace an internal need for certainty with external skills. So if you are looking to use skills to replace certainty, you're on a hamster wheel. That's what I said, you know, you go to the, I, I need to know how to start my own business, so I go take a course on business, or I get my MBA, uh, and then I go on to the advanced, and then I go on to the super advanced, and the trainer course, and the train the trainer course, and the train the trainer trainer, doesn't stop. You can't learn to swim on dry land, to quote Bruce Lee. Mm -hmm. What will give you the certainty is taking the battle for your shoulders, stepping up to the plate and swinging and see what happens. But if you think that, you know, oh, it's okay for them because they must have been born with a gift. They must have had you know, lucky parents and you know, access to capital. And No, I can show you that the biggest travesty of humanity is those who had all of the resources, the best education, the best parents, the best access to credit lines, the, being the right place at the right time, all of the stuff that we think would be the best cards to hold in the deck. And they did absolutely nothing but fail flat. And then I could point to numerous cases throughout human history. We had people that got what you would call a bum deal. They didn't have any of that. And they went and knocked it out of the park and made the rest of us look with open mouths and go, wow. See, the difference that makes the difference isn't the skills you have. It's the intangible. It's, as you said, desire, determination, the ability to persist, the ability to be willing to step up and raise your hand again, even though the teacher shot you down. The willingness to stand 
in front and say, I believe this is the path I'm walking and no one's talking me out of it when everybody says you're an idiot. That level of inner muscle is what determines the world we live in that is built by the people that walk that path, not the people that had the most certificates on the wall. And of course, sometimes when you jump, you do fail. And uh, this is another flaw that I kind of, you know, see in the mindset um, in Eastern Europe and especially in Europe that uh, we somehow shame failure. Um, we don't have a very, you know, healthy failure culture. We put labels on the people who have mm -hmm. failed. Um, and also ourselves, it's, uh, you know, for us, it's very, you know, hard to recover from, from failure, to overcome this kind of labels. And sometimes we also use them for, for ourselves. I remember, you know, the first time that uh, I tried to be an entrepreneur and it didn't work out. And then at some point, because I was, I was the salesperson and I would prepare everyone that I knew that... Um, there's going to be a venture and this and this topic and I'm doing that and we're working now on the platform and, and everything so on and so forth. So every time when I encountered someone that I pitched my idea to after we have failed, they would ask me, you know, hey, what happened? When is it coming out? And each time when I have to answer the question, I would be reminded of what a failure I was. And for a long time, it was hard for me to overcome this. And I think this is something that we very much have here in, in, in Eastern Europe, which mm -hmm. is on the other side of the ocean, celebrated. Mm -hmm. yeah. Tell me about failure. T ties in again to what I mentioned earlier about goop, mm -hmm. the good opinion of other people. It also ties into something I mentioned recently about a lot of entrepreneurs mistakenly attach their self-worth to their net worth. Mm -hmm. And if you understand that for me, failures are my capital. If you go to Tom Watson, founder of IBM, mm -hmm. it's a famous story about how one of the sales reps made a mistake, a catastrophic mistake that cost the company $1 million. This is back in time when a million dollars was a lot of money, right? A lot more than it is today. And he gets called into the office and the sales guy is obviously certain he's gonna get fired. And that's a pretty big mistake. And he walks in and Tom Watts says, do you know why I've called you? He says, well, clearly I'm gonna, you know, gonna be fired. So I'm so sorry, he says, fire you? It just cost me a million dollars to train you. <laughs> See, your failures are your capital, hmm. right? I've failed more times than I've won. As I said, some have wiped me out. One of my biggest ambitious companies, I put years of my life into millions of dollars out of my own pocket and some millions out of my friends and family's pocket. It was a spectacular failure commercially. Hey, I learned a lot. That's a great education. People that pay a quarter of a million dollars to go to Harvard don't get the kind of education. I mean, I paid you know, probably $4 million for mine yeah, when it came to how much money I personally lost in, in that deal. But what an exciting venture. What an exciting education. And so now when I go to the next round, I'm carrying $4 million worth of lessons that some people will never get because they're not willing to try or pick up the bat. See, failure isn't falling down. It's staying down when you've fallen. That's real failure. Go talk to a baby that's trying to learn how to walk and they get three steps and fall over. When was the last time you saw a baby say, that's it, I quit. This walking thing, not for me. No, they keep going until they walk. 
Ah, mm. oh, maybe there's a formula there that we forgot when we started to learn how to walk that we should remember when we fall down in business. Which is something obviously very, very, you know, typical for human nature. Okay, that's, I like this perspective and I also like the fact, and I think I'm going to do my homework, um, calculating the worth of my failure. <laughs> How much money did I actually Yeah, celebrate that. That's, okay. That, that, why would you waste that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's like, you know, buying a car you're never going to drive. Hmm. It's like paying for a holiday you're never going to take. That's like, you know, you've, you've paid for that experience. That's what brings you to the next level. Nobody's successful out of the gate, nor should you be. Again, a baby's not born walking. A tiger's not born knowing how to hunt. The first time a, a young tiger goes to hunt, and I've got news for you, the gazelle's gonna get away, right? Because they're inexperienced. And if a tiger turned around at that point and said, ah, stuff this hunting game, clearly I'm not cut out for it. Mm. What do the other tigers think? That's it, I'm gonna starve to death. Nah, it doesn't happen. You was, as you were speaking, it also made me think about, um, you know, because you say the goop, uh, the good opinion of, uh, of other people. What about the bad opinion of other people? I mean, um, you have this experience which uh, is very surprising by a person like you. I mean, you spent six months mm -hmm. in prison yep. for contempt, mm -hmm. from what I've read, and I guess, you know, prison in our society and especially probably in Great Britain is seen something that is like, uh, you know, going very low. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, how did you deal with the bad opinion of people while you were inside or when you got out? Well, luckily, as I said, I've had a lot of experience in not being affected by other people's opinions because I star in my own movie. Mm. And that's, that's paramount. And when I went in as the only non-criminal in Britain's most violent jail for, for, for six yeah. months. Yeah, never been accused of a crime, never been charged or arrested, still don't have a criminal record. I'm actually uh, just on, on the on the uh, as a side side note. Ooh, a side note. Why uh, were you in this type of prison? I mean, for a crime like yours, you shouldn't be actually in the most violent. Well, I said there was there was no crime. I mean, there, I, it was a, it was contempt in a civil action. And even in, 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 in a business why were you in this? Because it was the closest to yeah. the court. So okay. I should have been transferred within a week to a holiday camp type. You know, uh, I mean, there are no prisons for civil prisons. Right, but there are obviously low risk categories. But because of how archaic the system is and how fundamentally flawed and degenerative it is, it took several months to process me. Now, I look at it as a perfect gift. In fact, when I went in using the movie metaphor, I wrote to my students in my first letter and says, guys, don't worry about me. I'm simply on location for six months filming the prison scene in my movie. And every movie needs some sort of, you know, action, adventure, drama, yeah, a good movie requires everything. Yeah, you want to leave the cinema and say, wow, now that is a movie I would pay to watch again. You don't pay good money to watch James Bond rescue a kitten out of a tree for 90 minutes, right? That's not going to work. So for me, when I was sentenced in contempt, which, you know, as I say, is a whole different conversation. Uh, and yes, clearly there were lessons for me to learn there as well. Mm. I, I realized immediately that I had a big seminar a couple of weeks later that you know we just spent $50,000 on advertising to promote to sell $50,000 of tickets to so now people want their money back and oh it was it was I lost everything. You know I came out of prison 4 years ago 
a third of a million in debt with no business, no credit rating, no nothing. That was an exciting time because I'd never dug myself out of a hole that deep. Like, wow, this is going to be fun. Let's see where it goes. And today I'm, you know, I'm, I've got a six-figure-a-week business you know, back from scratch. Now, when it comes to uh, going inside, how I saw myself, my identity was a huge part of that. If I saw myself as a prisoner, I would most likely adopt the role of victim. That would have been my question. Why weren't you in the role of the victim? I mean, you Because were... I know where that goes. Why would I do that to myself when I have the ability to choose? So I, ch I looked at it and said, okay, I've been very fortunate over the last quarter century that millions of people have benefited from my work or my videos online or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And maybe the people that could benefit the most never get to see that or hear it because they're in somewhere like prison. So if the universe or whatever you want to call it wants to send me in to be able to help people to demonstrate that I can walk my talk, what an exciting adventure that is. So no, I'm not going in as a prisoner. I'm going in as a secret agent of change. Mm -hmm. And that was the attitude I went in with. In fact, before I was given my cell, I had the appointment with the doctor. And after a few minutes of conversation for the medical, he leans in, he says, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He says, are you undercover? And I, I laughed. I says, why do you ask? It was actually the second person that mentioned that. Yeah. He says, in 20 plus years of being a prison doctor, he'd never seen anybody so happy on their first ever day in prison. And I told him why I thought I was there, to be able to help people, maybe help change the system. I don't know. I'd, it was a new experience. I'd, I'd only ever seen stuff on TV. You know, if you've ever seen the, the film Prison Break, that was kind of the prison I was in. Mm -hmm. yeah? same, same kind of layout, same setup. Yeah. And so I went in with an exciting mission. And to cut a long story short, I ended up getting a lot of the prisoners off drugs. I was stopping suicides. I, I redesigned the intake system to help new prisoners adjust uh, and reduce violence between the wings. I won a national award while I was in there for the, for the work that I did. The legacy of that is, is now being used in prisons all over the world, uh, affecting thousands of prisoners every month. Uh, I mean, I couldn't have designed a more amazing adventure to be able to do. But I know if I had have chosen at the beginning to be a victim because I cared about what everyone in the press was saying, what my rivals were saying, all of the people that wrote me off. If I gave that any energy, I'd have probably you know, gone into depression and, and never have achieved the magic that was able to achieve because I adopted a different role as the star of my own movie as the secret agent of change. And what made you fit to relate to people who were in prison? Because I can imagine that very few of them were you know, privileged, had the silver spoon on, or, I don't know, were entrepreneurs and high achievers. I guess they, you know, had a different life. What, how could you relate to them, to their reality, to, to their struggles? Because they're human and we're all made of the same stuff. And I know the emotions they were feeling. I know what somebody feels like when they feel unhappy because I know how I feel when I feel unhappy. Mm -hmm. And how somebody feels when they feel hopeless because I know how I felt when I felt hopeless. So, Going into impose will always get pushback. Going into understand will get a level of common ground that you can build from. And one of the things that I was teaching the prisoners, was, there's many different things that caused a, a huge amount of, of you know, personal benefit and growth to them. But one was to get them to a place of acceptance. Most people were upset because they were resisting their situation and you couldn't do anything about it. 
once you can accept that, hey, listen, I've been sentenced to X amount of time, I'm here for the next X amount of days, months, or years, then once you accept that, you stop the energy of resistance that is becoming the friction point to your soul. And now you can use that energy to channel it into the next best thing. What's something I can do in prison or with my situation to, you know, to benefit? Whether it's learn a new skill or a new trade or look at the lessons I've learned or to you know, be able to contemplate where my life is going next, whatever it may be. But getting to a place of acceptance is a, a, a huge first step, especially with failure or what you call failure in business. Hey, it didn't work. Well, let's move on. Not, oh, every time somebody mentions it, I'm like, oh, it, it's like picking a scab. No, that scab's healed. No, I don't worry about it anymore. Right? What can I learn? Well, I learned not to scrape my knee as bad as I did last time by riding the bike a little better. So one of the things I also did was teach prisoners the difference between freedom and liberty. See, freedom is what they thought they'd lost, but they hadn't. Freedom is a state of mind. As Gandhi said, nobody can do anything to you emotionally without your permission. Mm. See, I was freer in my little cell than a lot of the prison guards that were leaving at night to go home to a relationship that was dysfunctional that they didn't have the tools or the courage to fix or who hated their job next day. I was freer in my little cell than they were. All that had happened is my liberty had been reduced. Well, okay, so I have less options. But somebody without a passport can feel that their liberty is reduced. Somebody who yeah, breaks their legs can feel that their liberty is reduced. And somebody who's been grounded by their parents for doing something they shouldn't can feel that their liberty has been reduced. But freedom is a state of mind. Mm. Uh, and so that had a big beneficial effect on a lot of this psychology of the people there. It's, it's, it's always how you choose to look at it. Trying to change the outer world is futile when it comes to understanding that outer world follows inner world. Get your thinking right first, and the outer world will tend to rearrange itself. Now, you still have to put one foot in front of the other. You still have to act on set in the scene that you're in appropriately. But the upcoming scenes tend to be a little more benevolent, a little more, a little kinder, a little less dramatic when you calm the waters of the mind and then start to realize that most of the drama that people experience is nothing but mismanaged imagination projected into their outer world. Can you repeat that? I really like this kind of, you know, sentence. So it's a mismanaged... Mismanaged imagination. imagination that most people then project into their outer world. And that's mm. why you see people that have drama at home at the dinner table, mm. they solve the drama and then they go to the gas station. There's drama at the gas station. They go to work, there's drama at work. They live in a drama. Mm -hmm. That is their, it's an outer projection of what's going on in their mind. Mm. Now they may not consciously have set that up. They may consciously want to say, I don't want this, but you don't choose with your conscious mind. That's the small part. I say to people, the conscious mind is like an ant. And if it's marching north towards the directions of its goals, confidently striding what it thinks is the right direction, but it's marching over the back of an elephant, your unconscious mind that's walking south. Yeah. And no amount of uh, ant strategies are going to turn your elephant around. Your ant is going to say in a loud voice, you deserve the body and the relationship and the income and everything else. But then you go self-sabotage because your elephant is still walking in the direction of, I don't feel I'm good enough. Oh, mm. I daren't do that again in case I'm branded a failure one more time. Mm. Oh, well, you know, my teacher said I'd never amount to anything, so therefore, fill in the blank. 
what did you learn personally from this experience in, in Pentaville? I learned that no matter what bends in the river of life show up, if you learn to concentrate on how to sail them, no matter where it is, rather than try to control the river, it'll always lead to a decent destination. Mm -hmm. and it's always darkest before dawn. We know that. Do you believe in fate? I believe that we came here with a general script for the movie. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we have a built-in GPS. We know when we're on track because it lights us up. We have an emotional Geiger counter. When we're doing something that we're meant to be doing, we feel passionate. It feels effortless. When we're doing something that is usually to avoid our fear or avoid the courage that we need to take, we're getting those little messages. Please make a U-turn. Uh, or you're off track. It'll still listen, but we ignore it. Because the mind is a lot of noise that is trained to justify, whereas the heart is a faint signal that we don't tune into a lot of the time. And so uh, if you are able to walk your truth, never in a straight line, there's no straight lines in nature. You see a straight line, it's man-made. Yeah, there's no, no river runs in a straight line. We call that a canal, and it's usually not a lot of life in it. So if you take you know, the river of life, it's always bending. What most people do mistakenly is they try to use all of their energy to manage the current. Well, that's not very useful. Mm. Instead, use your energy to manage your position in the current. Once I'd been sent to prison, I couldn't do anything about that in terms of in that moment. So what can I do? I can use the time best. The guards, the prison guards would ask me, how are you doing today, Mr. Sage? Because they knew, they knew the answer. Live in the dream. <laughs> and it would make people laugh, which is one of the rarest sounds you'll hear in prison. But mm. I was all thinking, I wasn't putting on a brave face. I had an incredible adventure. I got to experience things I never thought I'd be able to see. Mm. I got to touch people and help people you know, in ways that I never thought I'd be able to do. I got to demonstrate a lot of what I teach on stage or in class in a real world environment to prove to my students it's not academic, that they can actually take it through into their lives. And if I can handle it in prison, what excuse have they got around the dinner table or when they, they lose their job or if their business is struggling or you know, if they get fired or whatever it may be? Now, I don't want to talk from theory. There's too much of that. The world is starving for transformation while drowning in information. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, make it real. So when we speak about your personal experience, I wonder, first, do you feel like you have found your life mission? I, I hesitate to say life mission because, you know, we never know what's around the corner. I like to say that right now I'm walking my truth. Okay. Now that truth may be a different truth five years from now. Uh, what was my truth for the first 10, 20 years was to be an entrepreneur first and a speaker and teacher second. Mm -hmm. Now my role is to be a speaker and a teacher first and a businessman second. Mm -hmm. and that's my new truth. And it feels right, it feels congruent. It didn't feel right 20 years ago. Yeah, if you ask somebody who's married, that at the time they get married, that's their truth. A lot of people change their mind after 10 years, mm -hmm. that it's no longer their truth, and so they'd rather remain certain in a relationship and unhappy and unfulfilled because they're more committed to the ship than the people sailing in the ship than risk uncertainty and go for fulfillment. Mm -hmm. So. That may not be your truth. What gets you from A to B doesn't get you from B to C. You may be a completely, or you should be a completely different person today than five years ago and a completely different person five years ahead from now. So why would you not walk your truth if it was your truth? Now, if there's lessons to learn inside, 
for example, of a marriage, using that as the continuing example, whereby it's not just easy to get out of, uh, and therefore you're blaming the other person for not being a team fit. No, there's lessons there for you to incorporate and learn and progress and grow together through. It's a unique classroom in that respect. But if it, you've learned what you perceive to be the lessons and it's just no longer your truth, a piece of paper with a signature on is not going to keep me from preventing me walking my path. Okay. Um, I believe that, you know, currently, even in Bulgaria, people have a bit more luxury to choose their own truth and to walk this path. But some years ago, where, you know, economic situation was a bit different, especially, you know, my generation. I remember that we were trying to figure out in which sector are we going to make most of the money? How are we going, you know, to secure our um, uh, survival in, from a financial point of view? And in this sense, I think many people never even ask themselves the question, where is my passion? What do I want to do? Where is my truth? Um, so for all these who maybe are, you know, not sure where is their vocation, their true vocation or their truth, as you call it, what kind of example or what kind of advice would you give? How does it feel to have your, your truth? You know as well as I do what it feels mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. When it comes to making decisions, you can make decisions from a number of different places. And unfortunately, the, the place that often leads to the least fulfillment going full circle to what we first spoke about, mm. is from a place of fear or scarcity. If you're making you know, decisions from a place of fear or scarcity, you're essentially saying that I don't trust the fact that I live in a friendly universe. Now, there's practical things one has to do. If you're out of job work and, and an entrepreneur and you have to take a job to put food on the table temporarily before you, you know, reset to go find your passion, then that's great. You, know, you, you, you tune in. But... Albert Einstein was one of the smartest people in modern history. And he said that the most important question you can ask in your lifetime, in your lifetime, not on a Sunday when you're bored, not on you know, Labor Day weekend, not when you're just those moments where you're feeling philosophical. The most important question in your lifetime is whether or not you live in a friendly or hostile universe. Mm. See, if you believe you live in a friendly universe, it's got you back. That's why I see myself as an inverse paranoid. I can walk into prison and I know that the universe is involved in a secret hidden conspiracy to make me happy and successful. And it did. <laughs> okay. Uh, but if you live in a hostile universe, you're coming from a fear-based mentality. Your, your amygdala part of your brain is in overdrive because now you're feeling more separate from rather than connected to. Mm. Then you're going to make decisions that are based on, say, scarcity and fear. You're going to be in survival mode. That, that's, that's a corridor that's available to walk down. I've just never seen anybody walk down it for a period of time that's had any level of fulfillment. Mm -hmm. So it takes courage. It takes the willingness to fail. It's like, my passion is to do X. Well, I, I was just sailing last week in Croatia. We um, hired a, a cruise ship and had 30 students on a private boat where you know, we sailed around Croatia. We did the same thing last year, right in the middle of COVID in August, when the world was in lockdown. No hotels were open, and we wanted to prove to the world that you could create magic on your own terms. Mm -hmm. So we hired our own cruise ship, and we took 30 students like we just did, and we sailed for a week doing amazing things. 
And I just got off the, the ship a few days ago, came here to Bulgaria for my, my event this weekend. And one of the ladies that was on the cruise ship, one of the statements that she was sharing was, I spent my entire life doing what my parents wanted me to do so that I could be the good little girl that I thought that they needed in order to get love and validation and approval and acceptance and all the other stuff. I feel miserable, unfulfilled, considering antidepressants. And then I realized what was going on. I was not walking my path. Now, I don't even know what my path is because I've spent so <clears throat> long, so many meters walking another one that I feel lost. Well, that's okay. The awareness of that is a great first step rather than the blind continuation down an alley to a future that's not bright. Mm -hmm. So being able to pause and take a breath, most people don't even know they're lost. They're too busy doing the same thing day after day and wondering why, you know, magically happiness doesn't show up. If you want the secret of happiness, it's pretty simple. You don't have to sit on a mountain for 20 years. You don't have to go and you know, search like you know, for the holy grail. Happiness is pretty simple. Don't complicate it. Happiness is nothing more than the byproduct of thinking happy thoughts. Case closed. Okay. And you can think happy thoughts no matter what's going on in the outer world. The problem is most people have rules around what has to happen in order for them to give themselves permission to feel or think happy thoughts. That's mm -hmm. playing the game of feel great when. For me personally, I've been kind of, you know, skeptic about this kind of, you know, positive psychology. Mm -hmm. And I must say that, you know, thinking happy thoughts sometimes just feels unauthentic, like it's not true. Because it's I, against your rules. I kind of, you know, need to connect also to my sadness, to, um, mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe also sometimes feeling a victim. I'm very frank here. And sure. I think that, you know, also others in the audience might feel the same way. How do you, how do you deal with that? Where do you live? Where do you visit? See, if you live mm -hmm. in depression and occasionally visit happiness, mm -hmm. I can predict your life. Yeah. If you live in happiness and occasionally visit depression, I can predict your life. It's going to be very different. Mm -hmm. So one of the great illusions of humanity is the fact that we think that the purpose of life is to be happy. It isn't. The purpose of life is to be authentic. Now, happiness is a, an emotion. As human beings, we are designed to feel a range of emotions. I didn't want to be happy at my mother's funeral. It was a time to grieve. It was a time to connect. It was a time to feel sad and allow myself to go through that cathartic process mm -hmm. so that I didn't try to suppress it and come up dysfunctionally in other areas. But I was visiting grief on my terms. I wasn't trapped there. I wasn't saying, oh, poor me. The last living close relative I have is now gone. You know, I have no brothers, no sisters, no grandparents. Know, aunts, uncles, or cousins that I'm you know, close to. So you know, I could have chosen to be a victim at that level. But no, nor did I want to be happy and put on a brave face and try to suppress it under an, you know, that had been inauthentic. Mm. But once I processed that, once I'd honored my mother, you know, once I connected through that, you know, I lost one of my best friends two days ago. Yeah, I raised a glass for him that night. I connected, I felt sad. I, I, I remembered the great times we had and, and I let it go. But where do I live? Where do I visit? If I'm chasing happiness, as so many people are, under the illusion of thinking that'll give them the life that they want, the reason that most people can't feel happiness or they try and it's inauthentic is not because it's time to be sad or time to be a victim. It's because their rules for happiness are being broken. Oh, I'll just think happy thoughts. Well, if you put that over the top of an unresolved belief that says in order for me to be happy, everything in my life has to be okay, 
then trying to think happy thoughts is not going to work. So it's not about anything other than the mismanaged imagination of your own rules and values as to what has to happen in order to fill in the blank. I'll give an easy example with fitness. Mm -hmm. Some people, health is a value. I value health. Mm -hmm. But what has to happen in order for me to feel healthy? For some people, I have to go to the gym four times a week, eat organic food, yeah, not miss a workout, yeah, drink clean water, yeah, fill in the blank, fill in the blank, never eat sugar, whatever it may be, have 12% body fat, of myself with superfoods. They have the rules, and if those rules are not met, they will not allow themselves to feel healthy. So they've been to the gym three times that week, and they're about to go for their fourth workout, and the gym's closed. Now they're denying themselves access to the thing they value most in terms of a feeling because of a rule that set themselves up to do that. Not because they're not healthy, probably healthier than you know everybody that walks into McDonald's. But for me, I have a rule for health is a value. But I choose to experience and feel healthy when I take a deep breath, when I drink a glass of water. That is an excuse not to go do a workout. I'm going to train because that's what I do as somebody who values health. But I'm not going to deny myself mm -hmm. the ability to feel healthy mm -hmm. because of complex rules that get in the way. Does that make sense? It does. Apply that to happiness mm -hmm. and you have your answer. Mm -hmm. Isn't happiness still, though, a more like a momentary feeling and fulfillment and maybe being feeling content is the you know the state of mind that we should be striving for because I somehow discriminate between the two. For me, it's happiness in the way that we have it in our pop culture is some kind of euphoric experience, and you cannot simply you know be for long in this state of mind. I'm sorry. <laughs> and from your perspective, level of consciousness, experience, and model of the world, that's a 100% true statement. Mm, okay. <laughs> But I've met people who are joyously happy, regardless of what goes on in their life. Now, they're a lot more enlightened than mm. someone like you or I. Mm. You know, I've lived with the Zen masters in South Korea in the mountains and observed people who, you know, regardless of the demeanor of what's going on in the outer world, live in a constant state of you know, maybe somewhere around about eight, nine hertz in terms of brainwaves, it's constant joy and bliss. Mm. You know, and they can operate from that place. Now again, There's a time and a place, but where do you live and where do you visit? And using health again as an example. Mm -hmm. uh, if you live in McDonald's, you can visit the gym once in a while. It's not going to do a lot. But if you live in the gym, you can visit McDonald's once in a while. It's not going to do a lot. And so you know, when it comes to happiness, we're using labels and semantics to an extent. I personally believe that joy is a natural state of a human being without anything that has to happen for it to manifest. Okay. Look at a baby. A baby is joyful unless there's something that contradicts it. Like, for example, yeah, hunger or you know, bathroom or you know, craving connection from mum or what have you. But if you see a baby that has no incessant needs for that in terms of survival or connection, they're just happy for no reason. Not because they got the new iPad, Not because they were told they're going on holiday. That doesn't exist in their world. But because they're just happy. Okay. And when we recall back to that level of state, we realize that our natural predisposition is joy for no apparent reason. Why would you not want to be there? And, and people honestly tell me, say, Peter, you, you seem happy all the time. Well, not all the time. I live in happiness. I visit other you know, modes and emotions when that's authentic for me to do so. Mm -hmm. 
but like, is it, and they speak to people that are close to me you know, after an event or so, is he really like this all the time? <laughs> and I'll tell them my answer. And it's an authentic answer. I don't know what it is. I tried being unhappy. I didn't like it. Okay. Don't complicate mm -hmm. it. Why would I want to be unhappy? Mm. From that perspective, yes, it makes sense. I have this uh, final question to you, which we actually ask to all our guests. And uh, I think this question reflects in a way a mindset that we would like to nurture here in maybe in an innovation community or in our society, this part of the world. And the question is, what do you want to be remembered for? <laughs> the presupposition is, do I want to be remembered? And that can come from different places. Mm. Yeah, ego. Uh, I teach a whole lecture on how to leave a legacy. But I kind of turn it on its head because for most people, leaving a legacy is, again, what are you remembered for? You know, did you build a school in Africa? Do you have a library named after you? Did you have healthy kids? You know, whatever it may be. <clears throat> for me, the legacy is not so much what you leave behind. It's what you take with you. Was I able to be a little kinder when I left this earth than when I arrived? Was I able to try to shed a few of the, the weights around my consciousness that allowed me to hopefully be just that little bit more of a if, um, realized human being than you know, when I started the journey? Mm -hmm. Was I able to leave people better off than worse off because they cross my path. I don't care about what I'm remembered for. I'm not the star of everybody else's movie. I'm not trying to muscle in on their movie. I want to be able to have made a little difference that helps other people become better in their own movies and recognize their own greatness. If I can hold up a mirror for people to see that, then that's way more important to me than caring about what they thought of me holding up the mirror. I really enjoy your answer and I uh, was actually looking forward to because we started with uh, the need for significance and uh, I think sometimes we imagine our own funeral exactly from this need of significance where we kind of you know look for this con final confirmation that uh, uh, how to put it that we will be acknowledged that we will be missed that we will be loved and people will come and they will remember us for, for all the good things because this is what you do at funerals and I was really looking for having an answer from someone who maybe went beyond that, not caring about being significant, but maybe not necessarily wanting, you know, to be forgotten. Um, I see in your answer something that uh, I would say is very, maybe close to my idea of karma, that, uh, you know, after the totals, you still want to be on the plus side. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for this conversation and thank you for being here with us. Um, I hope that uh, maybe we didn't go too much astray from our typical topics. We tapped really deep into human behavior and human psychology and uh, which could be the sources of you know, confidence and uh, having a more fulfilled life. And I hope it will be useful also for our um, for our audience and everyone who watched us today. Well, I'm, I'm very humbled and blessed that they've given us the time that they have. I know it's valuable these days and people can choose where to place their attention. And I'm grateful for the invite to be able to come onto a platform like this that you guys have for being able to try to help so many people. So 
Uh, if, uh, if we could leave a little thumbprint on, uh, on people in a way that allows them to take something from this, then it's been worth the trip. We're definitely on a very similar mission of uh, making other, you know, stronger, better, more confident. This is our mission too here. Thank you so much for your time too. My pleasure. In the next episode of the Recursive Podcast, Irina welcomes the head of engineering of Product Hunt, Radoslav Stankov. I mean, it's different for everybody, but usually when you, how do you uh, grow in a software organization, like a leader internally, you just help people. Like, who is the, usually the way you see the new leaders is the people who first take the initiative. And the second is if there is a problem, who people cluster over. Like, for example, when I was out of the office, who is the, the person who takes over me? And I intentionally didn't appoint that. People just instinctively know, yeah, it's this person. And you start helping people. Like, if you help people, that's the moment you, you create empathy with them, back and forth, the way you mentor people. That's how you create stuff. And the third thing is, you have to be reliable. Like. You cannot become like an engineering leader in an organization if you don't ship your features on time or they don't work or your work suffers. Even if you help the whole team, in the end of the day, you, you have to provide your, your basic function. And if you are just as passionate about innovation as we are, hit subscribe for the Recursive Podcast on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. We're everywhere.